Oh, man, what a time of worship. We could have done that all day, I think. And we're going to do it throughout eternity. Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Um, children can be dismissed for Children's Church, and your teacher will meet you in the back there. Um, we've been talking about... Uh, just before the sermon, we've been sharing with you the different missions that we support. Today, we're going to share with you a little bit about Sunshine Rescue Mission. Uh, Sunshine Rescue Mission includes uh, Hope Cottage, but that's the women's side, and I'll talk about that another day. Today, I just wanted to mention about the men's side. It's in, it's in Old Town um, Flagstaff. It's been around for quite a while, and this church has been a supporter of the mission from the early days when uh, uh, Alan Sternod was the, the man who's, who uh, I knew um, way back when it was first started going. And it's always been there to help uh, men who'd kind of lost their way, whether they were addicts or um, just homeless at the time or whatever. They provided a place for them to get a meal and shelter for the night because Flagstaff gets very cold. And so they have a few ground rules. You can't be inebriated when you come in and you have to listen to the message that volunteers bring before uh, the meal is served. And uh, I, a long time ago, I got to speak there once and uh, one of our uh, attendees who comes down from Flagstaff periodically, Angel Ruta Flores, um, often is a speaker there. And the work they do with men is unique in that they not only help them uh, temporarily, but then they help them, if they go through the discipleship program, they help them find employment and then help them with transitional living and so that they can then uh, afford to rent an apartment and get back to, uh, back to life as self-supporting, uh, contributing to the a community in Flagstaff. So they do a wonderful job there. Um, and, and we're really glad that we've been a part of that for so many years. Uh, for a while, we were one of their biggest supporters, but now that they that Hope Cottage is going so well, they have support from all over because people have recognized what a great job they're doing. So that's one of our missions. Um, before we uh, get into the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you've blessed us in the way that we can bless these missions and these um, missionaries and different outreaches. Thank you for Sunshine Rescue Mission. Uh, continue, Lord, to use them to transform men's lives. And we thank you for the heart of those that founded it and those that are leading it today. We pray you give them strength and wisdom as they continue that ministry. And now, Lord, as we open your word, we invite your Holy Spirit to be present as we've just sung about. To help us to hear, to help us to have those ears that hear and receive so that your word can do its work in our hearts. And we thank you and praise you for this word. Thank you for each guest that's here this morning visiting from other places. We pray that it would be a blessing to them as well and you'd bless their, their journey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Today, um, uh, here at Wayside Chapel, we just worked through the scriptures, and you happen to have joined us when we were on 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
Um, the letter to the Corinthians is, is uh, well, like many of Paul's letters, he's dealing with problems in the church. But this one, it just seems more so than his other letters because he just addresses one problem after another. When we get up into uh, the later chapters, uh, uh, 12 and on, we'll, we'll have different things like the fruits of the Spirit and um, the chapter of love, 1 Corinthians 13. We talk in 15, talks about our, our transformed uh, bodies when Christ returns. So there's lots of good stuff ahead, but we're still in the problem section. And the problem in this passage, this particular passage, was that they had so much trouble, it's having trouble recognizing him, <laughs> that they have so much trouble with is the having meat in their culture. Let me see if I can get this to work. Having meat in their culture, there we go. Because meat was usually provide, the only place you could get meat was outside the temple after it had been sacrificed to an idol. So this chapter addresses, what do we do about this? Can we eat this meat that was given to idols? How do, you, how do we deal with this? So Paul's addressing that. It may have been response to a letter that was written to Paul from the Corinthian church. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 8? Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers, and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes, me, my, makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So if you had become a Christian in Corinth, you immediately found yourself in a dilemma. Everywhere you went, you were faced with idol worship. The trade guilds each had a god that they worshiped. So you come to work, to work and you're supposed to offer your incense to that god. You go to a friend's house and they have household gods in their homes. 
The meat in the marketplace usually came from the pagan temple. The temple priests would sacrifice that animal to God. They would take the portion for themselves, and then they would sell the rest of it to support the, the temple. If you went to a wedding, the meat sacrificed to the family God was served to you. And if you went to a meat vendor, should you ask, did this meat come from the temple or somewhere else? Many early Christians became vegetarians to avoid this issue because they couldn't decide what should we do about this, so they just said, forget it, we're not going to eat meat. Can you offer incense to the guild god when you go to work, or should you refuse and face the accusations of the guild when something goes wrong? Because you know if there's a, a hailstorm or there's a disease that everyone contracts, it's those Christians' fault. They didn't offer incense to our gods. If sales were down, whose fault was it? Had to be the Christians. This issue is still a problem in parts of the world. Thank God we don't face it exactly the same kind of issue in our culture, but we face similar problems when we are truly born again. In this passage, Paul's confronting uh, this liberal group within the Corinthian church, and their justification is quite simple. They say, there's only one God. Idols are not gods. So it doesn't mean anything when I eat meat offered to a non-entity. My knowledge makes me superior to the weaker believer who doesn't realize these facts. So verse 1 again. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This faction of the church that used the excuse of knowing better to justify eating the meat sacrificed to idols can appear in different forms in the church today. The goal, really, of these people was to justify their self-satisfaction. They wanted the meat, so they justified eating it. They say, if someone's offended, that's their problem. Grow up and learn the truth. Paul's confronting this attitude of, it's all about me. This is one of the major problems in the church. What can I get out of this? Which church meets my needs? As believers, we must allow the life of Christ to become more prevalent than our own desires for having our way. And that results in us sacrificing in love for one another. One can know that an idol is nothing and that we have freedom to eat the meat offered there for it was dedicated to a non-entity. But if by eating it, I am offending a weaker brother or is an unbeliever getting some impression that I'm still worshiping these idols, knowledge alone can be technically right but have devastating results. If my action's not building up my brother, it may be tearing him down. Love has a priority over knowledge if we are spirit-led believers. What is my action? Even if it's not sinful, what is it doing to others? Paul doesn't downplay knowledge. He does, however, imply that prideful knowledge that's willing to justify itself, his behavior, that harms a fellow believer is the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. If knowledge is not applied with love, people can be harmed. 
I can know that drinking a glass of wine with dinner is not a sin. But if I do so in the home of an alcoholic, I'm being heartless. I can know that I'm free to eat a piece of cake and a big scoop of ice cream for dessert. But if I do so in front of someone who's a diabetic, I'm just being rude. Knowledge can make us pridefully inconsiderate. Are my words and actions drawing people to Christ or are they pushing people away from him? Love always seeks the good of others. Verse two, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does yet, not yet know as he ought to know. We can know something factual, but not know God's heart about the time and the circumstances and the heart of those who observe our actions or hear our words. That means our knowledge is only partial. For example, I could go into a bar and sit down with a prostitute and talk to her about Jesus. I know that's a good thing to do, and I'm free to do so. But am I being led by the Spirit? Who's going to be damaged spiritually by seeing me there and using it to justify their sinful behavior? Will I end up more drawn to sin than drawing her to Jesus? What we need to know is God's will in each situation and the leading of the Holy Spirit. I know a sister actually visited us um, a few weeks ago who has this particular ministry. It's much more appropriate for her and the prostitute can relate to her better than to a man. When God puts a situation on our heart, it's not always for us personally to deal with it. It may be for us to express the need so someone in that particular ministry can meet that need. We think we know a lot regarding the gospel of Jesus, for we know much more than the world, but that doesn't mean that we should charge into every opportunity before us. Pray and get the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit knows the timing, the right person, the proper setting, and that's what we will not know except through prayer. Verse three, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, to be known by God doesn't just mean he's, he's aware of you. Remember when in the final judgment, when they come before Christ, he says to some, depart from me, I never knew you. It means to be, have an intimate relationship with him. Lewis in The Weight of Glory says this, this is glory, God's commendation, what our hearts long for, the well done that comes from our creator. By contrast, I never knew you is soul chilling. If you love God, you will never hear, I never knew you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. To be known by God doesn't mean just aware of your existence. It means he's in that relationship with you in which you can hear his gentle voice of direction that comes through the Holy Spirit. This beautiful verse is here because Paul's implying that to do the will of God at his leading is the knowledge that we need so that we can humbly build up one another rather than to be puffed up in pride and stumble our brother. 
The very fact that you love God means that he is in a very personal relationship with you. Of course, I'm talking about the God of the Bible, not the God of someone's imagination or a false religion. The enemy of our soul, you know, is he's called the accuser of the brethren in the book of Revelation. And that's why many Christians are too hard on themselves and think that perhaps they're not saved when they stumble. Listen to what this verse is declaring. If you love God, he is in a personal relationship with you. It doesn't say if you're perfect or if you do this thing or that thing, but merely if you truly love God. Do you love Jesus to the extent that he comes first in your affections? Then you're his sheep. You are in the fold. He watches over you. He knows you by name. Rest in that truth, dear brothers and sisters. Verse four and five. Therefore, as to the eating of the food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. The truth is that there is only one God and one Lord who is creator over all. Now, man has invented many imaginary gods, and there are lords ruling over various areas and beings, but there are nothing compared to God the creator. They exist because God created them. Their power and authority will be gone in an instant when Jesus returns. Even now, they can only do what God allows them to do. At Jesus' return, everything in heaven and on earth will bow the knee to him. To oppose the one to whom you owe your very existence is insane. When I lived in Japan, I would sometimes hike the mountain trails and often I'd come across these little uh, carved uh, idols, Buddhas or whatever that they'd have a, a carved image and they'd have a little stone in front of it where you laid your offerings. And sometimes behind it, there was a little shack, you know, often had been abandoned and was kind of in collapse. But still, hikers would leave coins and food in front of, front of these little rock images. I suppose the mice really appreciated it, as well as hikers who were low on cash. But I'd get this creepy feeling sometimes and I, one time I remember real clearly, I was tempted to take a mandarin orange that was there. I thought, what difference would it make? I mean, the rock's not going to eat it. I was kind of thinking like the Corinthians, you know. And yet, I, it just felt wrong. And so I, I never did. While the stone was just a stone, I wondered if some spiritual entity behind it was receiving people's worship. So while the carved image is nothing, there can be spiritual powers of darkness that crave the worship of man like their master, Lucifer. Their fallen angels who followed him in the rebellion. First Corinthians, uh, when we get to chapter 10, it will tell us this very fact that, that behind those images are demons. But even these demons cannot act outside of God's permissive will. Verse six, Yet for us, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom 
we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It's interesting to find verse 6 in the middle of this discussion about, uh, about eating meat or not. It's one of the highest Christological statements in the Bible, emphasizing the deity of Christ. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The prepositions from and for are attributed to the one God and Father. And the object of the preposition through is one Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament scholar Richard Bachman says, God's not only the agent or efficient cause of creation, from him are all things, but he is also the final cause and the goal of all things, to whom are all things, but also the instrumental cause through whom are all things. As we see in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4, over and over again, this is what Jews recite twice every day. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The words Lord, God, our, one, us, all found in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. And Paul brings this up because he's saying that God is sharing his divine identity with the Son, Jesus Christ. And in a similar way, Jesus shares his glory with his people, the community of God. The mutual interior deference, love, and sharing within the community of the Trinity between God the Father and God the Son has now become the basis for the community of God's people to share their rights and to revolve around others' needs rather than standing statically and expecting others to orbit around them. I hope you caught that. It's a quotation, so it's a little bit, uh, you know how these professors talk. He's saying that, that, the, that community that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have is the same idea that we are supposed to have, not just being about us and everything about me, but about one another and caring about others first, about having that community that's, that's other-focused than self-focused. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. See, not everyone is aware of the truth that an idol is nothing. If they see you eating the meat offered to an idol, their conscience will be defiled. Those who once worshipped will in this way will find themselves violating their conscience to do what their head says is okay. God convicted them in the past before they came to Jesus, and they remember that conviction. So as they go to eat that food, they, they feel they're, they, inside that they're doing something wrong. It's the same for many believers today. They can't be around some legitimate things because they abused them before their conversion. 
If they abused alcohol, they usually have a conviction to avoid even social drinking, even a glass of wine with dinner. If they gave in to lust, they're convicted not to be alone with the opposite sex. Legitimate things, but for them, it is wrong. Recognize their convictions and set aside your freedoms not to offend them and tempt them to fall back into their old lifestyle. We all have weaknesses and blind spots. Honor the attempt by others to avoid those weaknesses. Encourage them, in fact, with their effort to stay wholly submitted to the Lord. Don't be afraid to let others see your effort to do the same with areas you know are your weakness. You know, sometimes I never really, um, I, I was never really an alcoholic, but there was a point in my life where um, I was studying for a ministry with a certain denomination. They, want, they were completely against alcohol, and so we had to make a vow uh, if we were going to continue in pastoral ministry that we wouldn't drink. Well, I know the Bible talks about alcohol and Jesus made wine and I'm sorry, there was some alcoholic content to it. I hope that doesn't offend you, but that's just a fact. So I thought, well, how can I, I do this? I know it's okay. Um, and so in my heart, I said, well, you know, Jesus said he wasn't going to drink the fruit of the vine until his return. And that that's a symbol of joy. In other words, Jesus is putting off this, this great joy of being physically present with us until, he, until that trumpet sounds and we're in his presence. So I said, hey, if he can do it, I'll do it. So when people come to my home and they say, can I have a glass of wine? Sure, go ahead. You don't drink? No, I don't drink. But don't worry about it. It's okay. It's wrong for me. It's fine for you. And there are many things like that where we just have to say, for me, I, do, I can't go there. And if you can't go a certain place, I honor that and I respect you for that stand that you're taking. Um, verse eight, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. God won't judge you for not eating kosher. It's simply nourishment for the physical body. It won't affect you spiritually. In fact, Jesus said it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out of the person's mouth. Some Messianic Jews keep kosher laws because of the covenant with Abraham. It doesn't make them a better Christian. They're just honoring that commitment their forefathers made. Some Messianic brothers try to tell me that Gentiles should observe the Sabbath. In other words, Friday evening to Saturday evening uh, be a time of rest. It was their conviction before conversion. So even after I show them the scriptures that show that the church gathered on Sunday, they held on to their conviction. So then I share Romans 14, where the Holy Spirit specifically spells out that the day no longer matters. It's the heart of the believer and the righteousness we have in Christ that counts before God. Worshiping and resting on Saturday or Sunday doesn't make either of us better in God's eyes. I'm free to worship on Shabbat with him, and I'm free to esteem all days alike. I can eat kosher, vegan, or even McDonald's. Those freedoms are our liberty because the Lord is our righteousness. 
But if I am with a weaker brother, I'll strive not to offend his conscience or tempt him to do what he believes is wrong. According to your faith, be it unto you, Jesus said. But neither should we be unfaithful to properly care for our bodies by consistently eating junk food. We're much more than what we eat, but at the same time, we should care for our bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, but take care that this right of yours doesn't, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That's putting it real powerfully. I, I hope that we all can grasp that passion that the Apostle Paul has to see people know Christ as their Savior and grow and mature in Christ that he will do anything to, to, to not offend them, to keep them moving forward in their faith. Here, here is the issue. We might stumble someone who's weak. The act of eating meat that came from a temple is not wrong, but if you offend a weaker brother or sister and cause them to be destroyed, you're sinning not just against them, but against Christ as well. So be wise. Discern what's going on around you and how your actions affect others. Don't push minor issues that will stumble someone who's weaker in the faith. It's what Jesus has done for us that makes us righteous before God. As Paul said earlier in the letter, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Everything we do should be to build up our brothers and sisters and to glorify God. So many of these minor issues just aren't important enough to argue about. God can convince the person if it's necessary. Let the Holy Spirit have room to work and don't major on the minors. I remember there's one passage, I can't remember the reference, where the Apostle Paul said, and if any of you disagree, uh, God will convince you otherwise. <laughs> In other words, you know, I'll leave it to God to show you. You know, I've witnessed well-meaning people drive new believers away from fellowship by trying to make them conform to their convictions in, in some manner. People make an issue over holidays, over food, over dress, over expressions, and, and things God changed in them, so they're expecting that the new believer needs to conform right away. That's trying to take the place of the Holy Spirit in their lives. I recall one brother um, I've been witnessing to this family. Uh, they were a young couple with children, and I'd been trying to share with them, very secular, and they were coming so close, and then we had stacks on the patio, and I could overhear this one brother. He was just telling him, don't, you, you can't celebrate Christmas by talking about Santa? And he just went on and on about how evil it was to put Santa Claus into Christmas. And he was so adamant the family never returned. He was so confrontational over Santa Claus. 
We can learn from others, but the most lasting change takes place when we realize God is inviting us to change and helping us make the change. God help us let God shape others uniquely. We don't need to replicate who we are or our personal convictions on minor issues. We need to let the life of Christ be expressed in them in the way he chooses and in his time. I think with good intentions, we sometimes get in the way of what God's doing because we aren't praying about how God would have us bless that person's life. We just think God must want to do in them what he's done in us, and so we jump in like Peter and we get in, in between the person and God. Then we're a hindrance rather than a help. Verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. The Greek is very emphatic here. Paul's saying, I will never eat meat again forever. It's very powerful. It gives us a sense of how important it was to him not to stumble a person who was weak in the faith. We're to give up our rights and our freedoms so that others might not stumble. Their soul is infinitely more important than our freedom. Jesus died for that brother or sister. If God wants to change their conviction, he can do it by his word and by the Holy Spirit. Let God do the work. Don't push anyone to go against what they believe is a conviction from God, unless it's obviously sinful. If they're a child of God, we can trust our Heavenly Father to show them the truth. Our identity is not bound up in self-expression. It's bound up in the ultimate self-expression of a God who is characterized by self-giving love. The son gave voluntarily. There was voluntary self-renunciation and self-abasement. The most entitled person gave up his right for us. That's power. If he could give up his rights to bring us salvation, even letting man do whatever he would to his body, how much more should we set aside our freedoms not to stumble a brother for whom Christ died? Remember that what we do to the least of our brothers, we have done to Christ. What's the difference between the Christian's behavior and the world's behavior? Judge things by love, not by knowledge. Know that food does not make a person spiritual. Take care and don't be a stumbling block. Do not wound a brother's conscience. That's a sin against Christ. And claim the great principle. Do nothing that leads a brother astray. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing a closing song and then I'll Give the benediction. Would you stand as we sing?